The curious thing about life in technological society is that you see emerging forms of political agency for which it is impossible to assign political responsibility, right? I mean, you can name people who input into the system the horrible deed that gets someone canceled, right? Or you you can locate particular ideological sources of gender affirmation. You know, these are just two of the examples on the table. But the thing is, is these are inputs that ramify through a system that behaves systematically, right? And a system whose behave, ensemble behavior, whose behavior as a system isn't simply reducible to or explainable by any of those singular inputs. So what that seems to suggest, apropos of your question, is that it's a system of control without a controller. That there, you know, It would be nice, actually, if there was, was one conspirator who was sort of pulling the levers of power that we could tag as the responsible agent. If we could just stop them, we could stop you know, these phenomena from happening. But I don't think that's what technocracy is or how it works. And this, I think, represents a new form of power and a new form of political power that we don't really have a good name for, that we don't understand, and that I'm not sure we can ultimately govern or control. We are wandering between two worlds. Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born. Like Dante, we are in a dark woods, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the good, the true, and the beautiful. I'm Grant Martzoff. I direct Beatrice Institute's Personalism and Public Policy Initiative. How should we organize our common life to promote the flourishing of the person made in the image of God? My guest today is Dr. Michael Hanby. Michael is an associate professor of religion and philosophy of science at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Studies of Family and Religion at Catholic University of America. So Michael has many, many research interests ranging from the metaphysics of modern science to the doctrine of creation, Recently, Michael has been working in political theory, especially engaging in current debates related to post-liberalism, writing in journals such as First Things and New Polity. So our conversation today will be wide-ranging, but it will focus largely on the philosophy of science and post-liberal theory. So Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Grant. I'm really excited to be here. So if someone was to ask me to describe the essence of your work, this is what I would say. So I'd say the central preoccupation with Michael's work is critiquing the modern understanding of technology as ontology. And he writes about how this understanding impacts areas such as science, human anthropology, sexuality, politics. So would you agree that that's the essential essence of your work? Yeah, that's not bad. (laughs) That's a pretty good distillation, actually. I might have to borrow that when people ask me what it is that I'm doing. Yeah, so what do you mean then by technology as ontology? We'll just get right into it, the essence of of what you're trying to do. Right. Well, I mean, in order to see it, I think we have to unthink a couple of things that we're accustomed to thinking. I mean, as soon as one brings up technology, you think of your phone, right? And you think of the analogously of the collection of of devices that we have amassed to make our, our, our lives allegedly better. And, you know, I don't dispute that. That's one sense of technology, obviously. But underlying that and making that possible, I think, is a deeper sense that is, in a certain sense, contained in the word itself, which confuse, which conflates or fuses together making, right, techne, and, and 
Logos, knowing, reason. It is a bringing together of knowing and making or a knowing by making that has as its correlate a preconception of what there is on hand to know. So it is both a way, it's it's a way of looking at reality, but entailed in that way of looking at reality is both a tacit conception of knowing that involves experimentation and verifying our knowledge by the success of our experiments, right? And so knowledge becomes equal to our capacity to uh, predict, manipulate, transform nature by laying our hands on it. But it's also at the same time as as it is a kind of tacit theory of knowing, it's also kind of a tacit theory of, of nature insofar as it assumes that that what nature is fundamentally is something that is amenable to or transparent to that. So one of the ways that I've kind of summed that up sort of pithily in, in, in some of the things I've written is to say that it regards nature as a kind of machine and therefore knowledge of nature as a kind of engineering. Right. So the question in technology as ontology is never, what is this thing? It's how can we use this thing? Right, right. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's curious that you that you phrase it that way because one of the the things that I've argued is that science as our most authoritative form of reason, and I'm not the first, uh, by no means the first to have observed this actually, really isn't capable of posing questions in the what is form. And corresponding to that, of course, is that we have evacuated from nature the things that used to correspond to that question. So the questions that we ask or the way, I mean, that question is ineliminable, right? We do ask it. Can't help but ask it. But what we tend to do under the sway of scientific reason is answer what is questions with functional answers, like how many, how far, under what influence, to what effect, and so forth. And we ascertain our answers to those questions by taking phenomena apart analyzing them experimentally, manipulating them, and so forth. And so we tend to answer the question of what things are by how they behave under those imposed conditions. And to the extent that we believe that reality is composed both of what we can see and what we can't see, then science can't even describe reality. So in that case, is contemporary science even equipped to answer big questions? Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, I would say... Of course, it depends upon what you mean by a big question, right? And one of the curious things about our culture, which is a culture in which really only scientific reasoning is regarded as authoritative. I mean, you can philosophize if you want, but that's a kind of private and personal occupation that has no effect in either in the world of science or in the world of policy and law that's, that only accepts scientific or quasi-scientific, you know, social scientific conclusions as as reasonable. Within that framework, and it, it's amazing, when this occurred to me, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And then once I saw it, I, you know, I, it was everywhere. Within that framework, there is simply no such thing as a profound question, right? I mean, the very idea of profound questions as something publicly adjudicable in American life has just vanished, right? What we confront are not depths of reality that raise profound questions, what we encounter are problems and needs of solutions. Now, there are big problems. You know, there are huge problems having to do with the physical structure of the universe or the the way in which epigenetic manifestation works itself out. You know, that is to say, very technically complex problems. And I suspect that what we tend to mean by big questions from within a scientific framework is big problems. But the question of, for example, what a human being is, 
what human life means. You know, the questions of traditional philosophy are simply excluded except insofar as they are transposed back into uh, very complex functional problems. So I guess the answer to your question would be no. Yeah. It's not equipped to answer the big questions or it transforms the meaning of what we think a big question is. So questions of, of the, in the what is form, right? What is the human being? What is a good human life? Really become unintelligible as questions. And so we don't ask them. Yeah. So we, we were talking before uh, we hit the record button that I worked at the Rand Corporation for many years. And I realized that we were very, very good at solving problems, but we never asked the question, what is a problem? And why is this a problem? And I, and I realized that's one of the reasons I entered the academy was to begin asking those questions. Although I'm not totally convinced those are questions in the academy either. No, I, I would argue, in fact, that they're largely excluded from the, from the academy and that for the most part, what we mean now by education at every level is rigorously not asking them. You know, Hans Jonas, who's a, a philosopher who has influenced me a great deal, likened the whole situation, maybe the situation at Rand that you just described, to a ship navigating with its landmark tied to the bow. And I think that's a pretty good description. You know, better in terms of what? Problems in terms of what? You know, and, and problems beget more. Pro I mean, it's, 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 it's bottomless. Each problem begets another. Each solution begets another uh, problem and so forth. So when science is fully technologized, when we've sort of given over to technology as ontology, Will this inevitably render the person into an object of technology rather than its subject? Yes, but of course it is human beings who do or who undertake technological and scientific analysis. What's curious about that is, is that our analyses would effectively reduce us to sort of aggregations of very complex material processes, right? Uh, and yet in the very moment of our theorizing, so, you know, the, the, the effect of that would be to say, you know, that reason is really just electrochemical behavior in the brain. Of course, we don't think that when we're reasoning about the brain, right? So in the very moment that we undertake these, these reductive analyses, we leap to kind of Archimedean point outside of nature and exempt ourselves from it. Right, right, right. Um, it is because of course I'm the one thinking this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, as, as Jonas says again, the Cretan declaring all Cretans to be liars. But in answer to your question in the more basic sense, I think the answer is yes, right? You know, the human being becomes a very complex aggregation of biological systems uh, with no unifying principle, right? And if, if what the human being is, is identical to how those systems behave or can be made to behave, then there's really no in-principle limit on how we can transform or enhance or manipulate those systems for ends desired on other grounds besides those generated by the system. So if I can give you, I realize that sounds pretty abstract. If I can give you a cultural example without, I don't know if this takes us into forbidden territory for your, for your podcast or not. There's no forbidden territory. Okay. I mean, well, let's look at the most obvious recent iterations in the triumph of the sexual revolution, right? The redefinition of marriage and now the the transgender explosion. I've argued that both of those are kind of ideological manifestations of the technological revolution. They're the technological revolution brought fully to bear on ourselves in at least two senses. Theoretically, in that they require us to regard the human being and the human body in the way we've just described as a kind of meaningless physical substrate. Practically, in that the revolution can't be implemented without a 
public and social commitment. On the one hand, in the case of marriage to a widely public, publicly available regime of assisted reproductive technologies, commercial surrogacy, etc. on the one hand. On the other hand, we cannot normalize a kind of transgender anthropology without the regime that is now going under the euphemism of gender-affirming medicine, puberty blocking hormones, sex reassignment surgeries, and all the rest of it. So it's technological in that sense, too. We can't have this unless we politicize and technologize medicine in these ways and commit to them publicly. And in a way, it's like or analogous to, and in some ways also an extension of, the eugenics programs of the 1930s in which you had the state wedding itself to an ideologized biological science. We're playing here with the very foundations of and principles of reality. All of us are born, right? All of us are born. All of us come into the world in a, with a sexually dimorphic body of one gender or the other, right? The future of the human species depends in a very significant way on this. Our recognition of a world in common ascribed into our language, into our pronouns, for example, presupposes this reality. It's a pretty profound thing to take hold of and a pretty profound thing to manipulate. And yet we're doing it because we can, right? We're, in fact, imposing this on our culture. It seems to me with hardly any serious thought whatsoever about the meaning or the gravity of this, either for ourselves, for our children, or for our children's children. What do we have to do to ourselves? What do we have to do to our own reason not to see that? And it seems to me that your question then, I forget which, you know, what, what question we're presenting from here. I think it's the question about big questions. It's the, the question about does the technology as ontology inevitably render the person an object of yes. technology rather than a subject. Yeah, well, the, the, this would be an obvious answer of how that is, is how the answer to that is yes, but it's also an obvious answer to your earlier question about big questions. There are huge questions embedded in what we are now doing to ourselves that we and our pervasive forms of reason do not permit us to ask or think seriously about. We're blind to them. And curiously enough, you know, I still think perhaps the, one of the most important little books of the 20th century that it would do everyone, everyone would do well to read it and reread it and reread it. I teach it every spring, is C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And what's remarkable about that and what people, for the most part, miss about that is the connection between the first and third lecture, right? The connection between the realization of, of, of Huxley's brave new world and the conquest of nature in the, in, in the third lecture and the very seemingly innocent transformations and mediocritization of education, thereby depriving us of the ability to see and think in the first lecture. What it was his, and for that matter, Huxley's genius to see is that these two things go hand in hand, right? If we accept the premises that are compelling us, uh, propelling us into this brave new world, it also means a refusal and ultimately an inability to ask questions of this kind. But I do think that in terms of the latest practical turns that the sexual revolution has taken, right? Same-sex marriage and transgenderism. I think in both of those cases, the imaginability of those as possible social realities depends upon the advent of the technology. I'm not sure we could have had, in fact, I'm pretty sure we could not have had so-called marriage equality without the technological means to give children to same-sex couples, right? And the same would be true in the transgender sphere. I mean, for a man, for us to imagine that a man could really be a woman, we would have to 
uh, it's because we can imagine ourselves transforming him into one, what biomedical means that I think that becomes a reality. So another question about this connection between the, well, really queer theory and technology, are the critical theories themselves the technologizing of the humanities? That's a really interesting question. And I'm not quite sure what I think about it, simply because, you know, I lost my interest in critical theory in, you know, (laughs) around the end of the 1990s and have not kept up that well. But I do think I would offer a tentative yes, I think, to that where I would offer a more than tentative yes. I mean, so it all, part of it depends upon the meaning of, of your question, right? Do you mean that theory becomes a kind of instrument for the manipulation of social reality? That would be one way to understand it as a technology. In that sense, yeah. Yeah, that's sort of exactly what I was thinking, the, the idea that the theories themselves are meant to be useful as opposed as opposed to true. Yeah, yeah. Right? They're, me- they're meant to be politically useful as opposed to actually describing reality as is. Right. Well, of course... Okay, if that's at that level, sure. Yeah, I think so. At a slightly deeper level, part of the technological, part of what it means to say that technology is our ontology is to say, and this is, you know, straight, this is right there in Francis Bacon in the the 17th century, is to say that it conflates truth and utility, right? I mean, we measure what is true by our power to realize it, put it that way. So in that sense, truth in the old sense, truth as, you know, the adequation of mind and being just disappears, right? Which helps to explain, you know, the disappearance of truth in our culture or its redu- its reduction to technological or, or political feasibility. Yeah. So I sent a discipline in, in nursing school and more generally health sciences that in my estimation has been fully technologized, right? So when science's action has completely eclipsed science's contemplation. So the only way that metaphysics seems to appear is in the required ethics courses, so what is the role of ethics then within a paradigm in which science has been fully technologized? Inadequate, right? Because, you know, ethical considerations, which are really unmoored from any properly or tend to be unmoored. I mean, <laughs> let me back up. I mean, first of all, what do you mean by ethics, right? I mean, the, the, the underlying ontological fragmentation that is expressed in the dominance of science and technology in our culture is reflected in the ethical sphere by the fact that you have a hundred different ethical methodologies that are incompatible with one another, right? So, you know, Alistair McIntyre wrote about this 40 years ago in, in After Virtue. You know, by ethics, it's not as if we're identifying any coherent and unified discipline. But even if we were, it would be, as you say, essentially outside of the practice of medicine and as science, Right. So it's always trying to sort of correct it from the outside. But precisely for the reasons that we've described, the fragmentation of ethics on the one hand and the intrinsic indifference to ethical methodologies on the part of science on the other hand, what bioethics almost inevitably tends to become is a kind of baptizing of the technologically inevitable. Right. Or to confine itself to sort of banal questions like equal access to technological improvements or patient consent and so on and so forth. In other words, our ethics tends to be constituted by exclusion of the very same ontological considerations and principles that our science is. And so it really doesn't seem to do much to restrain biomedical and biotechnical quote unquote advances from their unlimited upward course. So just as a point of illustration, here's a quote from Richard John Newhouse, where he says this, 
Thousands of medical ethicists and bioethicists, as they are called professionally, guide the unthinkable on its passage through the debatable, on the way to becoming justifiable, until it's finally established as the unexceptional. There you go. I mean, it would be interesting to find concrete sort of case studies filtered precisely through that framework. I would argue that, and I don't know well the history of gender-affirming medicine, but I suspect it follows something almost exactly like that course. So I'm going to move on now to some questions related to political philosophy, especially some of the writing that you've done related to post-liberalism. So as you've written, Maurice Blondel stated that politics is metaphysics in action. However, the foundations of liberal democracy, especially when we think of folks like Rawls and Dworkin, is that liberalism is a form of government that expressly ignores metaphysics, but we know that is not true. So what are the implicit metaphysics that liberalism has smuggled in, whether liberal theorists like to admit it or not? There are a number of different ways to approach this question. The simple answer that I suspect, I don't know where your your questioning is going to lead exactly, but I, I suspect we may come to this, is the simple answer is, is that it's the same metaphysics that undergirds, it's the political expression of the metaphysics that undergirds our scientific and technological civilization. That liberal nations, that America as the quintessentially modern and liberal country has as its overarching form of life as its collective raison d'etre, as its sort of animating principle, the collective pursuit of scientific and technological progress, that we are as much Bacon's New Atlantis as Hobbes' Leviathan or Locke's Second Treatise or the Federalist Papers, is not accidental. It's not accidental. And in fact, you know, it's one of the things that's been really fascinating to begin to discover. I'm no historian, but it's really interesting to sort of trace out how this was operating in and amongst the founders themselves, Jefferson and Franklin in particular. The way I would characterize that metaphysics and maybe unify it with the scientific side of things is to say that it's first of all consequent upon the overthrow of the older tradition of Christian Platonism, whether in its Aristotelian or more Neoplatonic form. Uh, That is to say, it's premised upon the elimination of form and finality and goodness and meaning as ontological principles. This is the, you know, and this is reflected scientifically in in the movement from an Aristotelian to a Newtonian physics. What that does, what that overthrow does, is that it inverts the ancient priority of actuality or being in form, etc., over possibility. In other words, possibility, and now not the possibilities of particular things operating according to particular forms, you know, things being what they are, doing what they do in virtue of what they are, but sort of sheer abstract possibility, power. The modern world or modern liberal order valorizes this. It valorizes or elevates possibility or power to its highest principle in, I think, two different ways. We've already talked about one of them. In the scientific and technical sphere, it absolutizes power or possibility in its way of conceiving of truth. Truth is technological feasibility. We know we have arrived at a true conception of nature or a true theory of nature or provisionally true one when our experiments work, right? And this is what Bacon means in saying knowledge is power and truth is utility and all the rest of it. On the political side, I would argue that we valorize power or possibility through our conception of freedom and rights, right? What is a right? A right is a kind of zone of possibility 
that surrounds me, right? My possibility of doing not doing this or not doing this according to my choice. And the entire purpose of liberal order ostensibly is to protect those rights, to protect those rights, to protect my possibility of choosing, my possibility of defining myself, my possibility of acting from the encroachment of others, right? From the encroachment of others, from the encroachment of God, from the encroachment of society or social norms, from, it turns out, the encroachment of my own nature, which more than anything else, you know, threatens to define me prior to my choosing, right? To be born, you know, a man or a woman, right, is to have my freedom constrained before I have the opportunity to act, right? So liberal order, so the, so the metaphysics or the way in which, and, and so these two things go, you know, really fit really, really well together. And what they conspire jointly to do, it seems to me, is to inaugurate a kind of perpetual revolution or, or a perpetual war against any antecedent order that would define me prior to my choosing. And what's curious about, again, I hate to you know, dwell too much on this, but what's curious about the latest stage of the sexual revolution, for example, is that the freedom of self-definition and the technological conquest of nature converge, right? The technological conquest of nature becomes the means by which I express my freedom and, and necessary for it. So I don't know. Does that answer your question, Grant? Yeah, no, it does. So one follow-up I would have is, is the sort of techno-surveillance utopianism that we see in China and which is facilitated by Silicon Valley the next stage of liberalism, or is it something entirely different? Because their interest in rights is not particularly strong. Another philosopher who, whose work I've really come to appreciate, who I think casts a lot of light on, on the present moment, even though he died in the 1980s, is a, an, an Italian philosopher named Augusto Del Noce, who's been, whose work has been unknown to Americans, has been in, but has been translated into English in three volumes by my friend Carlo Lancelotti. And one of the things that he describes, or a term that he uses to describe the curious historical course of Marxism, he describes it as the suicide of the revolution, right? Marxism realizing its deepest presuppositions in its opposite, in, in a kind of bourgeois society. I think that term, you know, the, the suicide of the revolution applies to liberalism as well. It's certainly a different stage of the evolution of liberal order than the kind of live and let live civic liberalism that might have dominated the landscape you know, half a century ago or something like that. Uh, and in that respect, it is something else. But it seems to me at the same time, and insofar as it is totalitarian, and I think it is in, in, in ways that we don't even fully appreciate yet, it is the manifestation or the outworking of or the logical fulfillment of the deepest presuppositions of liberal order in what appears to be its opposite. And to make good on that a little bit, let me go back to something I said in response to your previous question. One of the curious things about the liberal conception of rights, right, the, the idea that I'm surrounded by this zone of possibility and, and that the state is instituted to protect the violation of that zone from outside influences. One of the curious things about that is, is that it actually insinuates the state into the heart of every human relationship, right? Because... And so, you know, the manufacture and the proliferation of rights, and rights can't but proliferate. Along with the proliferation of rights goes the enlargement of the state's power to police and enforce those rights, right? So what happens with 
the advent of the right to define my own gender, for example, and the codification of that. Well, you necessarily have to have the state, therefore, and instruments of the state, like bureaucratized medicine, intervening in the relationship between parents and children, right? Because parents are now a threat to children's capacity to, to define and express themselves, right? Or is, and, and so what curiously happens is, is that the state becomes totalitarian, or the state is not even arguably any longer the most important actor in all this. So let me say political order and not confine what I mean by that to the state. But, you know, the political order, it becomes absolute, the absolute horizonless uh, horizon that is situated into absolutely everything, right? Everything becomes political in the name of protecting freedom. So absolute freedom and absolute totalitarianism are not opposites. You know, they coincide. And the more rights we have, the more totalitarian of a political order we need. And therefore, you know, the other thing that this does is that you see this, for example, in the war on pronouns or the need to impose a new ideologically driven language to enforce this new order. You know, if you think about what our old pronouns did, he, her, him, him, his, is they gave unreflective access to a reality that we shared in common and that we mutually inhabit. Right. And, and a common reality is the basis of anything like a common good. You can't have a common good if you don't ha- inhabit a common reality. The revolution destroys that. You know, we're undergoing, we're losing our grip on a common world, even as we speak, it seems to me. Well, where there's not a common good, you know, and, and a common reality, you have to have, as Hobbes recognized in the 17th century, a common power. You know, and a common power who rules in a certain sense by, well, who rules by keeping us in awe. It seems to me that this is exactly what rule by internet does and what it in fact does far more effectively than the sort of finite rule of the state, right? The state can't get inside your head in quite the same way. Yeah, it's You you don't carry the state around in your pocket like you do your iPhone, but we all live in, in fear. We live in awe of the possibility. Here's possibility again, right? We live in awe of the possibility that in this mutual surveillance of all against all, that the furies can descend upon us anytime, anywhere, for the slightest thought crime and destroy us. Do you imagine a future in which politics collapses so much into technology that we no longer need the state? We just need people in their homes with iPhones in order to govern, right? So is there a future in which governance no longer requires government? That is a really interesting question. I, don't, I mean, yes and no. I mean, in a certain sense, I think we're already here, right? I mean, the state in its sort of narrow sense, is still a kind of form of an attempt at human governance. That's to say, you know, the governance of human by human institutions at something like a human scale. The state in that sense, it seems to me, is already wholly reactive to broader technological movements or broader movements to technological developments in the technological sphere that insinuate themselves into our technological regime of necessity and have a role before politics even knows what's happening. And you can think of, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible to anticipate. If that sounds abstract, let me give a, a, a mundane example of this. 20 years ago, none of us knew or even imagined that we needed an iPhone. You know, Steve Jobs might have imagined it, but the rest of us didn't. And of course, no one asked the permission of government or any of the rest of us to introduce this thing into the stream of history. 
By the time that politics can get around to trying to regulate the new world that the iPhone has wrought, the decisive deed has already been done. And that strikes me as a pretty good image of the relationship of political to technological order in general. Right? There's no way, we can't even imagine you know, the, the various eventualities they're going to present themselves to which they will then have to politically react. There's still a role, I think, for the state in that. I don't expect the, the political form of the state to, to disappear. And one of the things that we've interestingly discovered, and I think that COVID has helped reveal, is perhaps the anticipated ways in which technocratic order and political order can use each other. And so I don't, I'm not one of those end of the state kinds of theorists, but I am a sort of end of political order kind of theorist. I don't think that the order that emerges out of the convergence of politics, technology, medicine, and the surveillance capacities can be described as a political order or that it can be, can be, or in fact is being really governed by political means. Right. So if Aldous Huxley rewrote Brave New World, how would the character of Mustafa Mond change? What a great question. Really appreciate it. Mustafa Mond, it seems to me, is still a political character in the sense that, and this may be an example of the way in which Huxley and to some extent Lewis still had one foot in the political age and hadn't. Even while having another foot in the kind of the post-political age that, that may be emerging now. In that, obviously, there are people or there is an elite class that is able to wield enormous power akin to the power of the controller in the Brave New World, Mustafa Mond, right? So you look at, uh, it turns out, who knew? I didn't know that the the election of 2020 showed the extent to which actually it's possible for big tech to kind of turn off the spigot of information or to control what information appears and what does not. And that obviously represents an enormous power and one of the nodal points where something like a controller can manipulate or inject very powerful inputs into the system. But the curious thing about life in technological society is that you see emerging forms of political agency for which it is impossible to assign political responsibility. Right. So take, for example, someone getting canceled or for that matter, take the phenomenon of rapid onset gender dysphoria, which seems to be partially, you know, a consequence of and unimaginable without the proliferation of social media and are being connected to them like a kind of prosthetic attachment attachment. Or for that matter, take the, you know, the vast science experiment that we're now performing on the nation's children in the name of gender affirming medicine. Who's the responsible agent of that? Right. I mean, you can name people who input into the system the horrible deed that gets someone canceled. Right. Or you, you can locate particular ideological sources of gender affirmation. You know, these are just two of the examples on the table. But the thing is, is these are inputs that ramify through a system that behaves systematically. Right. And a system whose behave ensemble behavior, whose behavior as a system isn't simply reducible to or explainable by any of those singular inputs. So what that seems to suggest, apropos of your question, is that it's a system of control without a controller. That there, you know, It would be nice, actually, if there was, was one conspirator who was sort of pulling the levers of power that we could tag as the responsible agent. If we could just stop them, we could stop you know, these phenomena from happening. But I don't think 
that's what technocracy is or how it works. And this, I think, represents a new form of power and a new form of political power that we don't really have a good name for, that we don't understand, and uh, that I'm not sure we can ultimately govern or control. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I was talking to some friends. My son and I have been watching Carol, which is the six-hour docudrama about Carol Vuitiva oh, yeah, becoming John Paul II. Yeah. yeah, I love it. My son's really getting into it. And then we were, at the same time, we, uh, we were talking to our kids about abortion and women's care clinics. And I, and I had this epiphanal moment where I said, this is a weird time. In 1940, you could look and see who the evil people were. They were Germans marching through your town, and they were Russians marching into your town. But now the manifestation is downgrading search results such that you know a woman types in, I'm pregnant, and you downgrade the women's you know, a care clinic and you upgrade the abortion clinic. I mean, that, it, it, but there's no one, I, I can't stand in the face of that and demand that they stop. Like, it's just, it's an algorithm. So, it, you know, it's the whole arend, the banality of evil. It's almost, it's almost boring and there's no one to fight. Right. And, and I don't know how you, how you're a moral agent in the face of that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there are people to fight. Of course, there are people who devise these, these algorithms and apply them in certain areas. And I mean, you know, and, and one of the nice things about, the revelation of the censorship of information surrounding the last election, and this is not to speak, you know, about the election per se, is that it revealed that, you know, that there are, in a certain sense, you know, responsible agents who could be held accountable for this. We could break up Google, for example, or Twitter, and maybe that's even being done. Who knows? But the point is, is it seems to me, is that that algorithm itself becomes a catalyst for further downstream consequences that display a kind of systematic behavior but aren't controlled by the algorithm. So that even if you were to annihilate the algorithm, you wouldn't kill the system. And that, I think, just further describes the form of power that you're talking about and that we're confronting, that we all find ourselves confronting and surrounded by and, 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 and feeling helpless in the face of. You know, I think I mean, one of the great books in this regard, I say great book advisedly, or I put that in, in scare quotes, because in many respects, it is a, a very banal and frustrating book. It has a great capacity for making uh, profound questions banal. But that's Harari's, I always get Harari and Ansel mixed up. Is it, is it Homo Deus or Deus Homo? Uh, All right, yeah, um, I know what you're talking but, about. Um, you know, there are a couple of books like that now that are laying bare, if you will, the sort of post-political, post-human structure of this kind of social form. And as an anticipation of the forms this takes and what it looks like, I think it's pretty good. As a, an answer to the philosophical questions that it tries to raise, it's very thin and weak. So I want to wrap up discussion with a brief back and forth about integralism. I know you've been writing about this recently. So first question is, to what extent is integralism simply liberalism in Catholic drag? Well, I've alleged that, of course. And, you know, and I've alleged that specifically with respect to the revival of so-called integralist thought, principally among Americans, right? I mean, there's a a separate question about the integralism that appeared in France in the early 20th century, or what came to be known as integralism in France in the early 20th century. And then there's yet another distinction between those two phenomena and traditional Catholic teaching on the relation of the political and ecclesial orders. Every form of integralism claims to be appropriating that teaching and claims to be simply re representing it. I'm, I'm not convinced, and, and one of the reasons that I'm not convinced is because I, I think that there are un, 
acknowledged modernist assumptions at work inside of integralism, which it has not itself taken adequate account of. But I realize this is all a, a long and probably excisable prelude to the answering of your question. The reason I tend to think that integralism is a kind of liberalism in Catholic drag is because however true in principle and in a kind of platonic sense it may be that political order is inherently and intrinsically related to sacramental and ecclesial order in so much as that is rooted in the very ontology in which the church in its fullness makes sense. That, like every other truth of the sort that we've been talking about, is systematically excluded by the official meaninglessness of our modern and liberal order, which therefore makes anything like the realization of a Catholic political order, barring a miracle, historically impossible in our historical present. It is, you know, unless one has a highly, highly reduced understanding of that historical present on the one hand and of what it would mean to have a Catholic politics on the other. I mean, a truly Catholic political order would not simply be political. I mean, it would require the recovery of an entire form of reason and an entire, or, or, the, or the development of a cosmology upon which our world, our, our, upon whose denial our world is predicated. Right, right. So in that sense, you can liken integralism as to a politics of Rivendell. In a sense, it's unreal, practically speaking, even though it may, you know, be ontologically true. In consequence of that unreality, what integralism ends up tending to mean in practice is a religious embrace of the secular political order. Now, that can take really ominous forms. I mean, I think once you have that framework in play, it makes conservative Catholicism susceptible to any atheist political regime that promises to provide certain, you know, to uphold certain moral positions or provide certain protections for the church, right? You can have Patrick Deneen's formulation of this, positive formulation of this in, in, in one of his papers is, you know, the use of Machiavellian means for Aristotelian ends. I'm not sure you can appropriate Machiavellian means for Aristotelian ends without making the ends Machiavellian as well. And the reluctance of integralists to say, for example, what secular methods of wielding power would be excluded by their Catholic vision of things, what secular institutions as they have currently come to be would cease to any longer have a purpose in their vision of a Catholic order, is telling. More benignly, what I think it tends to mean, and this is why, you know, gets to the, the answer of why uh, integralism is you know, maybe another form of liberalism in the Catholic drag. More benignly, what that tends to mean, when, when it doesn't mean uh, susceptibility to a strong man, more benignly, what it tends to mean is a, rather than a fundamental philosophical difference, a difference in policy, but a difference in policy that doesn't, in the end, end up looking, in, maybe it's a less libertarian economic policy or more pro-family policies and incentives to the tax structure. Maybe it means the revival of decency laws, for example, or blue laws, for example, that were once a part of and had a place within our liberal order, but have since fallen out of favor and are now thought to be impossible. All things, by the way, which are you know, arguably quite worthy. Things that I would, at a, at a sort of empirical political level, you know, support in contrast to, you know, certainly in contrast to Biden's 
brave new world regime. But this becomes, in, in the end, the realization of different possibilities afforded by liberal order that doesn't call liberal order into question, and in some ways doesn't differ a great deal from what other forms of American conservatism have offered. And, you know, again, it might be politically salutary and it might be actually politically feasible within the confines of our historical situation and therefore even politically desirable. But let's not confuse that with a real integration of a Catholic vision of reality and American liberalism, or let's not imagine it or deceive ourselves into thinking that it's something other than a further perpetuation of, of the order that we already have that keeps in place, by the way. The, the entire cosmological, technological, scientific juggernaut that we've been discussing earlier in the conversation. All right, so the last question I have for you is, how do you explain the growing public interest in integralism? You know, who knew that this sort of arcane Catholic theology would be in the New York Times and the Atlantic? How, how do you explain the growing interest in, in sort of the general public in, in, in these questions, of these post-liberal questions? I think that is a complicated and multifaceted question. I think, first of all, there is a felt dissatisfaction among everybody, right? No matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, but also certainly among Catholics with the status quo of our political order. I mean, what's remarkable is, you know, if you read, what was remarkable, for example, leading up to the midterm elections is how diametrically opposed, as if each denizen inhabited a different world, how diametrically opposed people on opposite sides of the spectrum are. So if you saw, who was the liberal historian, Michael Beschloss, the little video clip of him suggesting that the midterm elections would be the very end of democracy, our children would be round up and killed, future historians won't be able to write, you know, the most radical and hyperbolic interpretation of democracy being on the ballot on the one hand. And you contrast that with, I think, someone who's far more insightful and closer to the mark, Rod Dreher, on the other hand. You know, nobody's happy. No one is happy. Clearly, we have a massive social and political problem. The last two or three elections have manifest this, that, we're for, that, we're, that we were choosing in 2016 between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump is itself absurd when you stop to think about it and shows the extent of civilizational decay that we are in the midst of. So there's a lot of dissatisfaction. It's a long-winded way of saying there's a lot of dissatisfaction on the one hand. On the second hand, I'm, you know, there's a sense among Catholics that the church in itself and Catholicism is in itself in a bad way and that entering more deeply into the tradition is a way out. But then you have to compound that with the fact that I think among the integralists themselves, as I was suggesting in an earlier part of our conversation, there is a certain categorical confusion as to the nature and a certain modern confusion as to the nature of integralist theory, what it is and what it should be now, and the, the desire to translate it into a kind of practical political program that had some purchase in America. And of course, all of this then gets ramified through social media and where it's taken on a kind of life of its own and where it has caught the attention of the you know, American pundit class, who is not the least bit concerned about the theological and ecclesial questions, uh, ecclesiological questions at the foundation or the heart, at the heart of, or really at stake in properly Catholic political theory, who are only interested in how this could present itself as an ominous force within conventional American politics. You put all of that together, and suddenly integralism is no longer a deep question of theology, 
and the relationship between sacramental and political order to be worked out principally in theoretical terms amongst Catholic intellectuals, it enters into the sphere of the competitive arena of American politics where it is denatured completely, where there's a certain cash value in opposing it, but also in identifying with it. And it distorts the nature of the thing fundamentally. And so I've tried to it's a tangled web that I've tried to disentangle a bit in a piece for New Polity, you know, called Are We Post-Liberal Yet? Where I, you know, I try and look at this post-liberalism and integralism not simply as bodies of theory, but as a social and cultural phenomenon and disentangle some of this. I'm not sure it was entirely successful, but it seems to me a very complicated phenomenon. And I hope what I've just said helps provide something of an answer for why that might be the case, for why it has emerged in this form and why everybody's talking about it, why the secular media in political journals are interested in the bogeyman. I mean, American media need a good theocratic scare every every decade or so, right? I mean, it was, it was what was Kevin Phillips's book from, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I've forgotten the name of it. Was it the Theocons or, or whatever, where, you know, American democracy thrives and legitimates itself over against the threat of theocratic scares, you know, particularly on the left, right? So these, this bogeyman has to be sort of resurrected every so often. And that's certainly a part of the equation as well. It's why it's, I think, of, of such interest on the left. But among the post-liberals or the integralists, depending upon how they're identifying themselves, you know, at, at different moments, these fires have been stoked, I think, partly uh, on the basis of these confusions and partly as an expression of the desire to sort of seize hold of the conservative movement and reshape it. Right. Yeah. Well, Michael, this is a great conversation. We are way over time, but I really, really enjoyed chatting with you about this. And I really hope that we can chat again and maybe we can bring you up to Pittsburgh and, uh, and have a conversation uh, in person, which I think would be a lot of fun. Oh, I would love that. And as you can see, I, you know, we're not, we haven't even scratched the surface of all of this. I could, we could do this all day, I think. Uh, maybe over a beer would be a better way to do it. But yeah, I would, I would love that. And I'd, I'd love to keep talking. And it's, it's great to meet you, if, even if only virtually, and to learn more about your really impressive institute and the things you're doing up there in Pittsburgh. Oh, thank you. It's, it's exciting. We, lots of really fun and exciting stuff happening in Pittsburgh right now. So thanks again, Michael. And hopefully we'll, we'll meet again someday. Thank you, Grant. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.